Welcome everyone to the Top Producer Podcast. I am Paul Nefer, your host, and we're going to have a conversation today with Matt Foles from, uh, is it Peru, Indiana, or what What would be the official city that you're located in, Matt? It is the official city, Peru, Indiana, the, <laughs> the metropolis, and so right across the courthouse. So how big is Peru? I got to ask, how big is Peru? Depends on how you ask, but about uh, eight or nine thousand people. Okay, so that's that's decent size. It's bigger than the town I grew up in. Uh, I grew up well. I didn't even grow up in the town. I grew up on a farm outside of Dixie, Washington, and I think the population of Dixie is like one hundred and thirty, and it's been one hundred and thirty for a hundred years. I well, no, I take that back. Well, probably a hundred years before that, it was actually about. It peaked out, I think, about fifteen hundred people. They had two two large sawmills that were just cutting all the timber in the area. And then once the timber was cut, you know, the whole town died and disappeared. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, my one bad joke when I'm, uh, you know, talking to farmers across the country, I'll say I'm from Dixie, Washington, and that's the town where if somebody gets divorced, are they still brother and sister? So you know, <laughs> that's, that's the type of town I grew up in. So, <laughs> but uh, Matt, we always like to start off with your background. So let's, let's, uh, for the listeners out there, uh, explain where you grew up and what you do and all that good stuff. Sure. Um, I'm born and raised in Evansville, Indiana, which I, I often joke with people is is maybe the largest town nobody's ever heard of. Um, population uh, of over 100,000 people. But uh, I'd say people in Indianapolis don't even know Evansville's <laughs> down there. So if you if you look at Indiana and it looks like a, a boot, I'm born and raised in the toe, I guess you could say. And yeah. so right 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 in that uh, Wabash Valley area, but right next to Illinois and uh, Kentucky. Although we'd, we'd like to joke that we're definitely not in Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, like I said, born and raised, family's still there. Um, and then I went to college up at Indiana State, uh, about two hours north of that, uh, home of Larry Bird. That's our, that's our claim to fame there. Uh, went there to, to be a police detective and wound up, decided to go into some, some law. Then went to law school in Indianapolis, um, the IU McKinney School of Law. And uh, when I graduated law school uh, in 2015, I, I also joke with people, there's there no jobs at the time. And so... <laughs> I, I took a blind posting for a job in Peru, Indiana. I had to Google it, figure out how far that was from where I was. Um, got a job here at what was formerly Dobbs Legal Group and, and got here. And, and the thought was, you know, get two years of experience and go back to Indianapolis. Um, but quickly realized that uh, my mentor, Polly, what she had built here was was a real specific practice in, in farm estate planning and business succession planning. And I really enjoyed it. And so here I am eight years later, um, and now the firm is, is Dobbs and Foles, very fortunate on that part. And so that's my current role, uh, partner at Dobbs and Foles, and um, mostly just spend almost all my time on farm succession planning. Yeah, and you and I have worked together on on a couple of different clients. And then we've done, uh, last year, I had a little farm tax update in, uh, let's see, which city was that? Uh, you probably in Huntington, which is uh, what about an hour north of Peru, or or plus or minus, where, which direction am I going? Mostly east, mostly so, east. Uh, okay. a little bit north, but uh, mostly east. Uh, so it's kind of halfway between us and Fort Wayne. Yeah, and I've been to Fort Wayne a few times. I've been probably in Indiana. I would say I've probably been to South Bend the most because that's where Ag Day is taped at, and I've been there quite a few times. So. Uh, 
or at least they used to be, I think they're still taped there. So uh, um, uh, they also, U.S. Farm Report now has a, a, a taping area in Kansas City area. So, so um, as far as what you do for farmers, let's dig a little deeper into that. Uh, sure. Uh, when we're talking you know, business succession planning for farmers, what, 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 what would you say your key roles are in, in that whole process? Mm -hmm. And so I, Polly and I get along really well because she likes to joke that she'd rather talk about dying and what happens at death. And I'd rather not talk about what happens at death. And so our practices have somewhat gravitated apart from each other. And she does, you know, a lot of the estate planning side and I've, I've found myself doing just a bunch more business, actual business entity succession planning or farming operational transitions. And, and so that's where the majority of my time is now. And I'd say the biggest benefit that I usually provide in that realm is, is I listen. I pride myself on being a, a really good listener. And what I'm usually doing is looking at one, an older generation and a younger generation and they're telling me we want to bring them into the farming operation. What does that look like? Now, I, I willingly admit I'm not a not a business coach. Um, I'm not the person you want coming up with the roles and responsibilities for your organization and, and stuff like that. But I, I start with a baseline. What are the goals and, and what are we looking to accomplish? And then I, I also say it's kind of my job or the accountant's job to sprinkle the taxes on top of that. So what, what I'm here to do is make sure that you you maximize the, the regulatory side of the USDA FSA office and the taxation side. But at the end of the day, whatever plan I put together has to make sense from a, a nuts and bolts perspective, from a, you know, how do you feel? How do you think? What does this look like 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now? And so I would kind of put that in two buckets. One is, again, bringing the next generation into the farming operation. And two is just farmer retirement. Yeah. Um, I think we, we've seen, to me at least, I've seen an influx in actual retirement because we're seeing a little bit of demographical differences to me between, you know, the, the greatest generation that died in the tractor and, and the boomer generation that's more focused on, you know, what is after farming. Yeah. And so I think we're seeing a lot of issues that that people like you were aware of, but I'm not sure the rest of the world was aware of it. What what happens when you decide to stop farming and what's the taxation of that? Yeah, and that taxation, you know, most farmers uh, that I ever talk to or work with, uh, you know, they're more than willing to pay 10 or 20,000, maybe 50,000 in taxes on an annual basis. But when you come close to retirement, and you start talking, well, if you liquidate now, you're looking at a million of taxes or $500,000 of taxes. They really don't like that answer, Matt. <laughs> and and the, the crazy part is that's the tax bill. That's just not, you know, the income that you need to report. That's, mm -hmm. that's the literal bill. Yeah, that's the amount of, that's the check that you have to write. So uh, you, you've been kicking that can, you know, the tax can down the road for 40 years, and now it's uh, coming back to bite you a little bit. So now... It is interesting. Now, you primarily deal with farmers, but you probably deal with some non-farm businesses, too. Do you see some differences between farm businesses as far as the succession and other businesses? Or, or, or have you seen anything in that area? Yes. I mean, there's there's to me the I call it kind of the common sense differences. I mean, obviously, in the farm realm, you're dealing with that USDA FSA element, and the re regulatory side of that um, and and 
all I, I joke, all farmers are running a family business. Now that makes that differentiates itself from a, a business where it's not a family business in the sense that a lot of things tag along with the fact of well, this is a family business and you have that familial element. You can't just you know dictate what the VP does when that VP is coming to Sunday dinner yeah. um, necessarily. And so those pieces are different. But then also the the farm economics and that taxation that you mentioned. I mean the the tax code just looks entirely different from a farm perspective versus a widget maker. Um, and so you have to deal with that. But I think broadly speaking, um, there's this stewardship and community element that I would say is is more strongly highlighted in the farming side. Um, yeah. this, I, this idea of, you know, I've been tasked with this great opportunity and I want to improve it. I want to make it better. Um, I, I don't want to speak ill to other business owners, but in the in the farm context, it's it's a little bit more in my mind community based. Farmers are are very focused on not not just how does this impact me, how does it impact my family, my neighbor, my church, and you have to be aware of those well enough to not discredit them. So if if I'm dealing with a farmer, uh, I can tell them that this is this is the thing that's going to make you the most money. But it could be a non-starter if it's not going to benefit more than that farm. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. It's that uh, that legacy that they want to pass on to the next generation. Like you say, as long as they do no harm, you know, they don't want to harm the local community or the neighbors or whoever it might be. So uh, now with the, you know, and I'm definitely older than you, Matt, uh, you know, back in the heyday, you know, sort of before 1986, which I just barely started before 1986. So I'm not that old, Matt. I'm just letting you know I'm not that old. Um, you know, corporations were the sort of the end thing or a limited partnership was the entity of choice for doing succession transfers and so on. But these days, we typically, A, we hardly ever see a limited partnership anymore. And B, Corporations usually in the farm arena, we typically don't use. What are some of the entities that we see these days that that we're going to be using for some of that succession planning? Mm -hmm. And I mean, it, it starts with the threshold issue of, you know, whether or not or how, how much do you farm generally? Now, that's a, obviously a generalization because what I'm getting at is, how many payment limitations do you need with the FSA USDA office? Because that's going to dictate whether or not I need to use some sort of general partnership bucket yep. Yep. so that I can I can maximize the program payments available to the farming operation. Um, so that's the threshold question. But if, if that's not applicable, I'm really looking at LLCs taxed as partnerships, yep. typically. Mm -hmm. um, now, <clears throat> I, I am... I've grown to be comfortable with corporations. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, I would say before 2018, I, I hated them. I mean, it's uh, I got these corporations with this trapped low basis on the inside that I can't do anything about. Um, but I think uh, with the reduction in the corporate income tax and stuff like that, it's it, those those entities have been helpful. Um, and so I will use. Uh, subchapter S corporations for farming operations. My big stick is I don't want to put anything in them. 
Right. Um, right. That's, yep. that's what I'm trying to, if I, if people get anything from this podcast today, that's my main point. I, I'm a huge fan of S-Corps to save on self-employment tax uh, bills, but try not to put anything in them. And so I often will do, you know, create an LLC, elect to have it treated as, as an S-Corp. And then that S-Corp is leasing the land from, from an LLC tax as a partnership. It's leasing the machinery and equipment from mom and dad. Um, and so it's more of a flow through entity. And at the end of the day, that S-Corp owns, you know, a year's worth of grain, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the reason for that is simply just to maximize the step up in tax basis in the event that mom and or dad and or son and or daughter pass away. Um, that step up in tax basis on all of these assets with a zero basis is super helpful. Right. And, and again, with the corporation, uh, you know, one of my favorite things. And actually, I'm, I, I just was editing a, a column I'm doing for Top Producer. And I happen to start it off this way when I'm doing my uh, farm tax updates. I always try to find the youngest person in the room. And I ask them, what's the most famous song by the Eagles? And half the time, they don't know who the Eagles are. <laughs> and, and, and then I explained it's Hotel California. And I know there's other songs that are just as famous, but, you know, in that song, you could check into Hotel California, but you could never check out. And it's the same with a corporation. You know, we can check assets into it. You know, we can put land in a corporation. There's no tax costs. We can put equipment in there. We can put lots of assets into a corporation. But if we ever want to take it out, you know, then you're going to pay that tax. So, yeah, you're right. You know, having it, a corporation is sort of a flow through entity. You're saving on maybe self-employment taxes. There's maybe some extra legal protection. Of course, your set structuring LLC is the same, typically the same mm -hmm. legal protection. Now, in Indiana, you know, in some states, if you're a single member LLC versus a multi-member LLC, there can be some restrictions on the amount of legal protection you have with a single member LLC. Is that true in Indiana or is a single member have the exact same amount of legal protection as a multi-member? Exact same. Exact um, same. And in Indiana, from that perspective, um, Indiana, it's called piercing the corporate veil. I think you, you know that topic, but yep. this idea that if you don't, you don't treat this entity like a separate entity, then, you know, if, if something happens, we should have the ability to, to pierce the corporate veil and sue you personally. Yeah. Um, extremely uncommon in Indiana. Indiana doesn't like it. And so with that kind of overarching idea, um, the same, you get the same legal uh, protections, the same limited liability as you, as you would with a multi-member LLC. And it's uh, another reason why I like the LLCs and, and maybe this is just self-serving, but corporations in Indiana have required annual meetings. You, you need to have minutes, you need to do certain things to maintain those formalities. Those aren't required in LLCs in Indiana. And I just despise, you know, charging a client every year to paper up some minutes when they don't, they don't want to have a meeting. They know right. what's going on. Yeah. And so I also like the LLC route just because it's one less formality that, that people need to stay on top of when their real business is farming, not preparing minutes. Yeah, and, and you bring up a good point because you do have to treat it as a business. Uh, there was a few years back, I was involved in a transaction between a father and a son, and, and the father had various LLCs that owned real estate. And, you know, that's very, very common. It was leased over to the corporation. As part of the process of going through the paperwork, we asked the, uh, the, the CFO of the company, 
hey, can we get copies of the bank statements for the uh, for the LLCs? And and I can't even remember why we needed it, but we needed the bank statements. And uh, and the CFO responded, we don't have any bank statements. And I'm like, or we don't have any bank accounts. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't have a bank account? Well, I just make a journal entry at the end of the year for the rent. And I'm like, uh, well, you know, they're, you know, if you ever got sued, they'd be able to pierce that corporate or LLC veil pretty quickly because, uh, you know, there was the, the LLC really did nothing. So, uh, but, yeah. Uh, and, and also, I know sometimes, you know, that farmers want to set up equipment LLCs and then they simply rent the equipment back to the uh, back to the farm operation. Well, to some degree, you've sort of transferred the liability back to that farm operation. So you still have to be careful of, like I say, dotting the I's and crossing the T's and so on. Yes. And, and man, I call them trucking entities. Uh, well, <laughs> just I don't like creating trucking entities because I, I it's so difficult to actually treat those as separate entities. Yeah. On, on the machinery and equipment side, I'm a big fan of putting that into... Uh, an LLC and leasing it that back to the operation because typically your your machinery and equipment your land are going to be worth more dollars than what I'm going to keep in the operation so I want it I want to shift the liability over the operation with exactly with a, a good commercial liability policy but those trucking entities I completely agree with everybody that that's that's the big risk in the farming operation is is the trucking. I just don't have a lot of clients that want to want to keep track of, you know, when was this in this farmhand or when when was I trucking versus running the combine versus this because yeah. I need to pay myself as I'm trucking differently than when I'm paying myself in other realms and all of those most of my clients say I'll just get a larger umbrella yeah. and there there we go. And and then a lot of a lot of states, if you're trucking for yourself, your insurance is a whole lot cheaper. Your licensing is a whole lot cheaper. Whereas if you put in another entity, then your insurance can double or triple or quadruple. And you got other licensings and you got different taxes. And uh, I, I, I sort of agree with you. No matter how you structure these LLCs, you want to make sure you have a very good uh, liability insurance policy. You also want to make sure you've named all those entities as additional insured so you know if somebody yep. gets sued you know you're, you're going to get paid by the insurance company instead of uh, coming out of your pockets so uh, uh, you know those are all things that uh, you have to worry about exactly anything else on on as far as services that you might provide to to farmers besides the sort of that succession is there other other services that you typically provide and we we're still comprehensive estate planning, and so um, it's we've been blessed, so to speak, in the in our client base, and that we have stayed on top of the federal estate taxation um, when that issue has somewhat become less pressing with the the doubling of the federal estate tax exemption. So, I mean, currently the estate tax exemption is thirteen point six one million dollars a person. Double that for a married couple. Yeah. Um, so nationwide, I mean, that's what one in 8,000 people are subject yeah. to estate taxes. So it's, it's not a common thing, but we have a couple hundred clients over that. And so we were well versed in the federal taxation of estates. Um, and, and that skill set has been super helpful for those clients that are over that, because I would say your, your muscles are only good as you continue to use them. 
and we're fortunate in that we continue to use those muscles. And so um, we provide pretty, pretty comprehensive estate planning as well. Well, let's talk about a little bit of a subset of that is that, you know, we have what we call the base exemption, which is half of that number, you know, about what, 7 million, almost not quite. And then you have the bonus exemption on top of it. And most people think, well, if I make a gift now, it's going to come out of the bonus. And then in 2026, when it reverts back to what I call the base exemption, I'll still have that base exemption left. Well, that's not how it works. Uh, you know, the bonus exemption has no value until you use up the base exemption. And when we were having the the meeting in in uh, Huntington last year, you know, you and I had a discussion that when we're making material gifts, we want to soak up one spouse first before we soak up the other spouse. Can you uh, dive into that a little bit more for the audience? For sure. And it's it's kind of underpinned all of my planning for the past three, four five years is this idea that um, you to put it on a pin, you need to gift more than seven million dollars for that to be worth anything. And yep. so I guess I should clarify that 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 bonus depreciation sunsets January 1st. I'm sorry, bonus exemption uh, sunsets January 1st of 2026. And so we have a, a law on the books where that's going to go down if Congress does nothing. And so I've been in every plan that I do, I have that in the back of my mind, making sure that I make sure at least one spouse is worth more than $14 million. And, and that's because if, if they need to use that exemption at the end of 2025, I need to make sure that both spouses, uh, at least one spouse has enough assets to completely utilize the, the bonus exemption there. Um, and the idea is, so if you had two, you had a married couple worth $20 million and, and we took the proper valuation discounts and all that, and they're still worth $20 million. Well, if, if both, if, if both husband and wife gave $7 million worth of assets to kids or, or somewhere else, then they're going to have zero exemption left come January 1st of 2026, but another six million dollars in assets exactly versus you know dad puts 13 million dollars worth of, of assets into a, a trust for the benefit of mom and he used he completely utilizes his exemption and then come 20 january 1st of 2026 mom still got seven million left and, and so and we're able to offset that seven million of other assets and they owe no estate tax whereas the ones that where they've split everything 50 50 now potentially they owe two or three million dollars of estate tax or more. Exactly, and so in in somewhat in the background, I've been strategic on when it makes sense shifting perhaps more wealth to one side, and, yep. and that's based on you know family dynamics, health concerns, stuff like that. It all it's all kind of a big bucket, but being strategic in who owns what leading up to. Uh, January 1st of 2026, because you you also can't just, you know, I, I can't transfer assets to my wife and then she immediately give those back to me in a trust. Yeah. 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 The gold standard is, is have a year of tax returns, ha have some K ones that show that that ownership was like that. So you can say I did that for a, a different reason than estate taxes. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, like in my situation, I, I've been in a community property state almost my whole life. I was in Oregon for a few years and we just moved to Colorado a year and a half ago, which is a separate property state. But 
you know, my wife and I want to maintain that community property that we have, because if I pass away, she gets a full step up, not just in my assets, but on her assets too, or vice versa. So, uh, so we're actually in the process of, of getting some of those documents done because in Colorado, we can't have a community property trust, so to speak. So, um, well, Matt, I think we'll take a break for a sponsor message and then we're going to come back and we're going to dive into a subject that you and I both think are very sexy, but I'm not sure if the audience out there will think it is. So uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and take a quick break. Sounds good. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? Ten years? Top producers like Hans Reinchi, a blue diamond farming company in Jessup, Iowa, know RoboAgger Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Rabo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, Rabo Agri Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together. Robbo Acre Finance. Welcome back, everyone, to the Top Producer Podcast. I am Paul Neefer, your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with Matt Foltz, attorney from Peru, Indiana. So, uh, before the break, I sort of mentioned that uh, I think the next topic is very sexy, uh, but it's charitable remainder trust. So I think most of the audience out there probably don't think it's that sexy. But uh, what is a let's just for the audience out there first, what is a CRT or charitable remainder trust? We'll probably use CRT because it's easier. And mm -hmm. and how do we use that in a retiring farm situation? Okay. And a, a charitable remainder trust is, is what we call a split interest trust. You know, it's, it's got kind of multiple different interests in it, but, but I kind of start with the problem. What is, what is the problem that the CRT is solving? And we kind of talked about it at the beginning of this uh, a little bit on this issue of when you're done farming, you've spent 30, 40, 50 years depreciating machinery and equipment, um, prepaying, for your inputs going into next year, um, maybe doing some hold pay and shifting, you know, grain into the fall into the following year, maybe taking on a little bit of a line of credit, those types of issues to where when you're done farming, all of that comes crashing down. You're, you're dealing with very large amounts of assets that have a zero tax basis. Yep. So if you if you sell them, you are basically paying taxes on the whole amount. And normally, in ordinary income taxes, not capital gains taxes, you're paying ordinary income because these are inventory assets. And so we're dealing with a farmer that wants to retire. Well, how do we how do we avoid paying, you know, 44 percent taxes on all of this after we get ourselves all the way up in the top tax brackets of federal, state, local and plus self-employment for those self-employed farmers? Yep. Yep. And and. The charitable remainder trust is is designed to help solve that issue, and in its simplest form, what it is is you just transfer those assets into a charitable remainder trust, 
the CRT sells those assets. So if it's grain, it sells it at the elevator. If it's machinery and equipment, it sells it to the local implement dealer or has an auction, something like that. And the initial tax bill is zero. The charitable remainder trust doesn't, doesn't pay any income taxes at, at that initial sale of everything. And again, generalizing, all the money goes into a, a bucket. You get an investment advisor to, to structure reasonable investments for that large bucket of money. And then the charitable remainder trust pays you what I call an annuity between zero and 20 years. Now, yeah. These can also be structured as, as lifetime, obviously. So uh, the grantor or the farmer that put everything in there is, is going to get the payment and they can get a payment for the rest of their life. I joke with people that I don't think my malpractice insurance carrier would like if I set up a lot of CRTs that are lifetime annuities because inevitably somebody passes away in year two yeah. and, and that, that farmer didn't get a lot of dollars back. But the, the term for the zero to 20 year term that you can do, um, you can designate in the, in the CRT, if, if I pass away, where do those remaining payments go? And yeah. it can go to a spouse or kids or, or anywhere. And I've even structured charitable remainder trust as a part of gifting where the farmer didn't need these assets, but didn't want to pay the taxes. And so mm -hmm. they contributed those assets into a CRT and their son or daughter was the annuitant or the beneficiary of those annuity payments. Um, and, and, and so in that case, the farmer is actually making technically a gift of those assets over to the to their heirs. Exactly. The, the value of those future payments right. is, is the gift. Yep. Well, and, and, and actually with higher interest rates, that actually sort of discounts the gift because, uh, well, I guess in a way, maybe yes, maybe not, because with higher interest rates, the CRT is able to pay out a higher annuity to the yep. farmer, or to the heirs but then it's going to be discounted at a higher rate. So maybe it comes back to being a wash. I haven't looked at the net present value on that, but it, it might be close mm -hmm. to a wash because a higher rate equals higher payments, but more of a discount. So maybe it comes back to the same number. So there are a couple different types of CRTs that we deal with, you know, the annuity, the CRAT, the charitable remainder annuity trust, and then the CRUT, the charitable remainder unit trust, uh, for the audience out there, explain the difference between those two trusts. The to me, the only important difference worth mentioning. I, I you could disagree. Uh, the charitable remainder annuity trust is a one-time contribution. You you can put everything in there, but you can't contribute to it in the future. A charitable remainder unit trust, by design, allows you to contribute whenever you want. Um, and so, for farmers that are are potentially slowing down but not retiring, a crut. Uh, is what, what we call it, um, allows you to make multiple contributions into that trust over different periods of time. Yeah. And, and I would say that's the primary difference. And, and typically for a farmer, I this is my opinion, you may share it or may not. I, I sort of like the crap because it smooths out that, that income tax liability. You know, it's an equal number each year for, let's say, 20 years. Whereas with the unit trust, you have a much bigger number at the beginning and then it slowly works its way down uh, where it's a smaller number. So you're paying a lot more tax in the first couple of years versus the end of the year. So that's typically why we like the crap more than the crud. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts on that is. 
I, I do prefer the, the crud over the crud. And it's what you mentioned, but another piece of it is also the crud is your your annuity payments are subject to the, the rate of return of the investments on the inside. And one of the, the main reasons why I've had success in using these and, and clients are receptive to them is largely because farmers, their, their entire existence has been weather dependent, right? Their, yeah. their livelihood is, is dependent on the weather, which means they've largely spent most of their lives in a pretty uncertain environment. And I, they've, they've really liked this, this crat that's going to pay them a fixed amount over a fixed number of years. And if I start sprinkling in there the crut elements of, well, your, your actual annuity payment is subject to how well your investment advisor invests these assets, they, they typically have shied away from that. They, they like this element of, you know, I can, I can take these, these assets, I can put it on a shelf and get this amount of money back, I can live on this munch, it's going to be there every year. And so that's another element why most of my clients also prefer crats over crats. In when we're using the word charitable, charitable, you know, there is an amount that's going to go to charity at the end. Uh, is that, is there a fixed required amount or, or what's, what's type of assets actually end up going to the charity? Well, it's, I, I, I kind of joke that we, we get a little bit into that black box of numbers, um, but uh, the, the dollar value of assets going in, the term, uh, the interest rate we're required to use, all of this basically spits up uh, a number that is roughly 10% of the initial value that you put in. So if you put a million dollars worth of assets into a charitable remainder trust, the annuity payments are designed in such a way to make it extremely likely that 10% of the initial value is going to be there at the end of the term. So if you put a million dollars in and it's a 10-year term, $100,000 plus 10 years worth of appreciation should be in there at the end of that 10 years. But not required. It's just expected, but not required. Exactly. Now, um, now a lot of farmers say, hey, well, I'm, I'm not really interested in giving any money to charity. Why are we doing this? So why are we doing this if they're not interested in giving money to charity? Well, there's still a huge tax benefit. Yeah. Um, the I, I tell people, um, well, generally when we're in the retirement talk, I'm sure you say something similar that I, I can't make your tax bill zero. That's just not possible. You, you what what we're trying to do is do some tax mitigation. Well, and, let, let's back up, Matt. Yes, we okay. can make it zero. They just have to die. So they, they, they don't want that conversation. So I, I thought about that when I was driving into the office, when I had CRTs to my brain, I was like, maybe I shouldn't say zero because you could also give it all away. I mean, you don't pay taxes if you just give the kids your tax bill. Exactly. So it could be zero if you didn't want anything. But uh, if you want something out of this, it can't be zero. Yeah. And, um, and so here, the to me, the the main tax benefit of the the charitable remainder trust is I'm managing your taxable income. And so uh, everybody is well well versed in the marginal income tax brackets. And the problem with selling everything in one year is you immediately jump to the top tax bracket. And for most of my clients, you jump there pretty early in, mm -hmm. in comparison to how much we're actually selling. 
versus if you put it in here and get an annuity payment of 200, 250, 300,000 dollars a year, I'm I'm keeping you in a lower income tax bracket for a a considerable amount of time and you're literally paying less taxes um, because you're in a lower income tax bracket. Yeah. So there's going to be a benefit to the farmer here regardless. Um, and it's independent. What I, I try to tell people is you're going to save taxes and you are going to benefit a charity. And even if you're not charitably inclined, I bet you like charity more than the IRS. Yeah, and, exactly. And exactly. that's the that's the comparison. Now, I, I haven't really run into that issue too much because most of my clients can find some bucket that they care about uh, local yeah. church or some somebody like that. But that's the comparison. It isn't that you're giving money to charity. It's that you're giving the IRS's money to charity. Now, even though almost every situation where we run the numbers, we can prove to the farmer that they're going to save taxes. In some cases, it's 10, 20 percent uh, savings. I mean, it's a big number, but a lot of farmers end up not doing it. And what are some of the reasons why you think they don't end up doing it, even though on paper we know Hey, instead of paying a million dollars of taxes, you're only going to pay six hundred thousand dollars of taxes over the next 20 years, that's a pretty good deal. Why why won't they do the CRT? Uh, several reasons. I mean, it's, it is the more complicated route. I mean, it doesn't get easier than sell everything, pay one giant check, and then whatever is left over is yours to do whatever you want with. Um, yeah. and, and there's an element to that that I respect. I mean, you not everybody wants to deal with an attorney and an accountant every year to look at their their charitable remainder trust and and stay on top of actually taking the annuity payments and, and making sure the investments are, are where they need to be. And so it's a slightly more complicated uh, option than, than simply selling everything. And then there's another piece of I, I have some clients that when they retire, they have big goals. Um, you know, that you, you got those those years, those initial years. People want to travel and do a bunch of stuff. Well, if you convert it into an annuity, that's that's your income. Yeah. So if you sold everything, you will get more money initially, and and maybe that suits your retirement goals uh, in your go-go years of, of wanting more money to to buy that house in in some beach somewhere. So yeah, yeah. and and also I think uh, sometimes you know farmers have a, a problem with that seven-letter word that starts with C and ends in L. You know that control. You know, even though they can be the trustee, they're the beneficiary, they're in, in charge of it, they're still not in full control because they still got to follow the rules of the CRT. So I, I have a feeling a lot of farmers that that ultimately is why they might not do uh, the CRT. I agree. But I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, I've been involved in several. I know you've been involved in several and most of them have really worked out pretty well for the farmer. Yeah, I, I've, I've had no failures, which knock on wood, I'm not yeah. on wood, I, I haven't done one that I've regretted to this point. Yeah, um, it's all and, and that goes back to that that issue, or that piece where I, I emphasize that I'm a good listener. Um, yeah. it's, it's important that I don't put somebody into what can be looked at as, as a complicated plan without having their buy-in, their, yeah. their other advisors buy-in. So we're all on the same page that what needs to be done going forward. I, I can't set these up and say, all right, see you in five years. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. it's something that takes a little bit of work and needs to have some oversight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a uh, good, I always like to end our podcast with uh, a few questions I like to ask in the, 
first one is uh, who is your mentor? Well, I have several. Um, and, and I'm one of those people that's kind of had mentors along the way in, in different, I guess, different areas of my life. I mean, uh, like most people, my first mentor was my dad. Um, he, he taught me the value of hard work. And so I, I always have to start with him there. And then kind of picked up advisors along the way. And, it, and now it comes to, you know, Polly. Um, yeah. She's she's the one that gave me the the shot at, at this. Uh, she, with, with her being no job, she likes to tell me, you know, you were one of 27 applicants looking for a job in Peru, Indiana. So uh, <laughs> I, I have to always give her credit for um, seeing the diamond in the rough there, um, seeing that I, I could probably do this, probably. Uh, it's, it's never known. Yeah. And so she's my mentor and, and still... Uh, now it's a really fun working relationship in the sense of since I've gravitated more to this business side and do a lot more of, of the advisement with good accountants like yourself, um, and she does more of the estate side, it's very beneficial when we come together. And, and so if she's in a file where they have issues that are quote unquote mine, she can loop me in yeah. and, and vice versa. So it's, it keeps us both on the straight and narrow. Well, good, good. Uh, do you have any time for any hobbies? Uh, I have three, uh, seven, four, and, and 18 months. And okay. so my hobbies have largely become, you know, coaching soccer, um, yep. running around, doing those types of things. Um, I It's going to be a weird hobby, but outside of the Green Bay Packers, um, my, my weird hobby is firewood. And so I bought a house here in Peru in the middle of 15 acres worth of or 15 acres of woods and uh, 75 tillable acres and bought a wood fire stove pretty early when I moved in. And so I, I, uh, I go through the woods, saw up the, the fallen trees and then burn them in my, my barn. And uh, I split it the old fashioned way. Cause it's, it's about the only exercise I get these days besides chasing my kids is, is yeah. splitting the firewood. So, I love that. That sounds like a good. Now I, I prefer my exercise. I play pickleball, so I, I think I'd rather do that than split firewood. But uh, <laughs> I can understand that. Uh, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Um, that's a that's a good question. I think we we kind of touched on it. Was this this fiscal cliff that's coming? Yeah, um, yeah. To, to put it on a pin, I, I 150 200 clients that are that are probably going to need to do something or should at least consider doing something. And so we're trying to, you know, we have four attorneys in this office, which is, is massive for a law firm in Peru, Indiana, but um, trying to manage that knowing that 2025, you know, it's, it's going to be tricky, making yeah. sure that we have the capacity and availability to do all those things. And then perhaps more oddly is this FinCEN stuff that came out. Yeah, <laughs> um, I don't I don't really want to get into that too much, yeah. but uh, this new this new reporting requirement for basically all entities recognized by the Indiana Secretary of State yeah. um, uh, reporting those and, and making sure that we get all that information. I'm desperately trying to avoid it. It's not yeah. something I want to do, but it's something that I think I, I will eventually have to do a, a, a pretty good amount of because a lot of accountants I'm talking to don't want to file them. Yeah. yeah. So, well, and, I, and to me, the major issue with that isn't necessarily the initial filing. It's all the upkeep you have to do because if the address changes or somebody gets a new driver's license, you have to provide that information. You have to do it within 30 days, maybe 90 days. They're talking about, you know, changing that a little bit, but that, that, that's going to be a nightmare because typically 
you as a CPA, we don't find that information out until they come in and do the tax return at the end of the year. So yeah. I agree. I, I think it's the chicken and the egg because yeah. I, I've talked to some accountants and I, I'm saying, well, who's going to be in the best position to know when there's a change? Yeah. And I really don't know because yeah. not every client talks to their lawyer before they do stuff and not every client talks to their accountant before they do stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I, well, I'm not sure who's going to be in the best position. Maybe you and I will do a subsequent podcast on the BOI. So, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save that for another day. So, and then uh, finally, what's your uh, definition of success in farming? To me, um, leaving it better than the way you found it. And, and I hope that's not too simplistic, but it's to me, the, the most successful farmers that I've dealt with, that's, that's been the underpinning is yeah. that stewardship element of when, when I'm done, this is a quote unquote better farm than it was yeah. when I got here, whether that's production, whether it's size, whether it's, you know, keeping the rows clean, whatever it is, um, leaving it better than the way you found it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I, that's typically almost every response I get from, from the podcast is something similar to that. So, uh, and, and I would definitely echo that, that sentiment. Well, Matt, is there anything else you'd like to add before we, uh, before we sign off? No, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's always, uh, I was a little worried about hopping on a podcast, but I said, heck, it's, it's Paul. He's easy to talk to. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> hey, it's, it's designed to be a conversation. You know, we're not, uh, I mean, yes, we have a little bit of a script beforehand, but that's just a guy idea. Hey, this is what we're going to talk about, but it doesn't say how we're going to talk about it. So, uh, and you've done a great job. So again, Matt, thanks for taking time out of your day. And this is the, Top Producer Podcasts, and this is Paul Nefer, your host, signing off. Hey.